Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Dr. Laura Anderson, it's been a long time coming. I'm glad to have you on the show. You are a religious trauma researcher and clinician. You co-founded the Religious Trauma Institute's uh, research, I don't know, it's not a division, consortium, collaborative, what's it called? Collaborative group. I yeah. think it's called a collaborative research group. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. I, I've been a member of that for maybe about two years now. Yeah. Really grateful for that group. You've got a book now, When Religion Hurts You, putting all this work into printed form. And I'm glad to talk to you about this topic. Yes. I'm very excited. Uh, yeah. Because like we, we were saying before we started to record, we've been in the same circles for quite a long time. And so it's always fun then when you get to actually be as much face-to-face as you can with, you know, people. So I'm delighted to be here. I will say that probably the average, especially these days, given how little knowledge there is about this, this topic that we both uh, work with and and have studied and have researched, you know, it's still really new on the public scene. And so I would imagine that most of your interviews are pretty much like religious trauma 101 type stuff because largely it, it is an unexplored topic for the average person, but I'm not the average person and this isn't the average podcast. And, you know, I did a spiritual abuse one-on-one episode with Paula Swindle. Uh, Josh mm-hmm. will put a link to that in the show notes. If people want to hear a conversation like that, like what is spiritual abuse? What's religious trauma? Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll do a little bit of, we'll explain yeah. some terms, but People can go check that out or they can find any number of the interviews you've done on other podcasts. Mm -hmm. I know you were on Rethinking Faith pretty recently. Mm -hmm. We're going to do more of like a comparing notes between two clinicians who work with clients that have religious Mm -hmm. trauma and have done research, peer-reviewed research in the world. Well, and shameless little plug here. I'm the co-host of the Sunday School Dropouts podcast, and we are really set on making sure that it is clinically accurate and 
talking about things, we're not focusing so much on like the deconstruction piece of like, oh, my church was so bad or this or that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do definitely value people's stories, but we do a lot of like the clinical sides of it. So I think our first six episodes were like very foundational. What is religious trauma? What is spiritual abuse and adverse religious experiences? What is the nervous system? Uh, Defining terms, you know, clinical terms that get co-opted in social media spaces. And I really like to point back to those episodes because they are so foundational. And for people that don't have an awareness of what this is, that can often be a really nice place to start. Let's do a little bit of your your story, uh, specifically what led you to want to research this topic? Well, I always start off by saying that my personal life absolutely inspires my professional life. And so my interest in religious trauma really came from my own and the healing pieces and journey of that. I don't know that there's ever a time that I didn't know about faith and church and God and all the things. I grew up in it, very like evangelical, reformed theology, that fundamentalist life. I was a camp kid. So my dad was the director at an evangelical Christian camp. Um, So we lived on site and in some ways it was all, it was all fun and games because what kid wouldn't love a horse corral and a ropes course, you know, like literally in your backyard. But, you know, in other ways I can look back now and I can see like the isolation. I can see the very strict kind of codes of conduct. What do you wear? What do you what like dating relationships and uh, like heavy boundaries around public facing things. There's already something there I'm really interested in. So when I got into podcasting and decided to study psychology, which were around the same time, it was because of Trump's nomination to GOP presidential candidacy. And I think like so many others, you know, millions of us who were raised in that world, there was like a what? And then the 81% voting number came out from the exit polls in 2016 And that put me on a path to sort of, I wanted to find language and concepts for understanding how it could be that this world that I had also, I was raised a a California evangelical, not on a camp, not on campgrounds, but, you know, moderate. My dad was a therapist. We, it wasn't, I wasn't raised fundamentalist, but certainly still in that world. And one of the concepts I came to very early, which I believe was John Ward, who now podcasts and writes books and is a political reporter at Yahoo. He used this term parallel institutions. Mm. And this was one of the, one of the most helpful pieces for me in sort of understanding what had happened and how like my parents' generation, though not my parents in, in their individual cases had gone for Trump. And part of that is that like all those Christian publishing, Christian camps, Christian schooling, Christian films, Basically, all these parallel tracks of all the things that people need culturally as they grow up in a society that that led to an insularity, which you could read as isolation from the rest of the world, which is the term you used. Right. And the more separate you can get, but still kind of checking all those boxes of Mm -hmm. things that you need to grow up, Mm -hmm. then the more you can enforce those strict codes, the more that everybody seems to agree on these things, because Mm -hmm. all our inputs of information are from the same kind of group of people with the same outlook. And that that led to basically a breakdown in trust of regular media because we got Mm -hmm. our own media. And so Mm -hmm. we can then say, ah, they're just trying to get him or, you know, whatever. That's the Trump stuff. But that parallel institutions thing does a lot of explaining for me and like how we ended up here. And it just is interesting growing up at a camp. I mean, you literally lived inside one of these parallel institutions. So I wanted to just kind of get that concept in there and and Mm -hmm. see what you have to say about that. Yeah. I mean, when you look at kind of this different systems of influence, you know, we have things like our churches, our, you know, kind of parachurch ministries, maybe school groups, And, you know, I grew up in the, I mean, I was born in the early, very early eighties, you know, so like focus on the family and, you know, 
all the true love weights, mm-hmm. uh, promise keepers, you know, like all these things that are coming to the forefront very much. And I don't know if they were trying to like bridge the secular quote unquote and, you know, religious worlds, or if they, if they were just trying to create different spaces to somehow demonstrate that we are, you know, what is it in this world, but not of this world. Uh And I think they all start to stack on top of one another. And I I think that's important because when we, you know, just kind of from a very like uh, psychological and like human development standpoint, when we look at, you know, a singular influence, if it's just that one, and then we have all these other influences over here, you know, people that are maybe encouraging critical thinking or aren't a part of that group or ideology, then this one source of influence does not have so much power. Exactly. But when we start to add all of those up and we look back now with hindsight and we see, oh, it wasn't just the churches or, you know, the the camps or, you know, purity culture or promise keepers or focus on the family. It's that they were all on top of each other Mm -hmm. and then being preached by the people that we love the most, you know, for, for us, that would be our parents. And it doesn't lead to a lot of escape easily. And, and escape really looks like the potential of disconnecting those relationships, because we also know in a cult-like mentality or fundamentalist mentality, we believe that difference equals danger. And so if people are going strictly off of the Bible, what is it in Matthew where he talks about, you know, going to somebody once or twice and then you cut them off? Like there's a lot of families that that has actually happened in. And so we could go a million different directions with that. But I do think that it is important to recognize the totality of the influences that were happening and still are happening. Yeah. And I, and I think in some ways that actually really led to this massive outflux or exodus from high control religions when Trump was coming into this political power, because these people, myself included, I mean, I had started my deconstruction process about 10 years before then, but All of these people are going, this is not what we were taught about. And we're seeing these leaders and pastors and clergy and parents and other, you know, spiritual influences that are promoting this political candidate that is not even close to like the Jesus that we were taught about and were taught what was important. And so I think that's where people started to go, hold on a second. I, I've got to figure this out. Like if, if this is now true, if we're supporting this, then what did all this other stuff in my past actually mean? And a little personal anecdote, I had a member of my family that I knew that they were going to vote for Trump. And shortly after it was those uh, inside access Hollywood tapes, I think is what it was. Exactly. The pee grabbing. Yeah. Yes. After that, I had a conversation with this person and I said, you know, I remember back in the Clinton era, sitting around the family table, talking about how much character mattered mm-hmm. and how much you could determine about a person by the way they acted in private and in their relationships and things like that. And I don't know how you can justify this person who is openly admitting to sexualized violence and say, I'm going to vote for him. You know, like that would be a good choice for this country or for, you know, where I stand. Now, interestingly, I had that same conversation with another person and they got very upset with what I was saying. Whereas the original conversation, they um, called me after the election and said, I just want you to know, like that had an influence on me. I did not actually vote for Trump. I voted like third party. Someone um, needs I... to give you a trophy because you're the <laughs> only person in America who had that yeah. conversation and it actually changed the vote. You, yeah. you might have some secret yeah. sauce here that, that the rest of us don't yeah. have. Yeah. But I think it does speak a little bit and we can probably get into this later is that 
connection matters. Like when we are, you know, talking right. and preaching something and it, that can be extremely disconnected. But when we are looking at the foundations of the relationship and I made very sure I'm not going to attack you and your political beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying, help me understand because what you taught me growing up is not what's happening now. And I just need to know how you're explaining that to yourself to make it make sense. And they were also willing to engage in a conversation, which helped. And that's what changed things. But that was not the case with other people. (laughs) I think in our public work around this topic, I think that we technically agree with each other about the benefits of religious participation for, Mm -hmm. let's say, the statistically average person. I'm sure we've read almost all the same articles and literature reviews and and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. It's not that we we probably don't – we wouldn't uh, argue against each other in a piece of literature about where to draw those lines of benefit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I talk about it a lot more than you do. And not to not not that a simple, you know, psychoanalyzing of story is enough to sort of fill all that in, but it might be interesting to contrast our experiences. So mm-hmm. I was raised in what I call like a moderate California evangelical setting. Mm-hmm. It was actually an interdenominational church that had formed with a bunch of mainline churches got together and hired this architect to build them a chapel, which is I think now like a historical building in Saratoga, California. It's beautiful. Very famous uh, sort of early pioneer woman architect in in, um, California in U.S. architectural history. Anyway, I had people there that are still like – like when I had some really difficult family stuff go down, the main person I went to for kind of counsel and wisdom on this is one of the associate pastors of my church growing up because he's a badass. He had a philosophy degree, loved Dallas Willard, not a fundamentalist at all, super kind of, you know, just just brilliant and and wise. I've had those people. I also had a Bible study leader of mine who died of COVID 15, 20 years before he needed to die because he didn't get the vaccine. And mm-hmm. that's just like bullshit. You know, I mean, that's just like <laughs> yeah. so sad and so unnecessary. And so he really failed that test. And then this other guy really passed the test. And I, and my, neither of my parents voted for Trump. And, you know, as I said, my dad was a therapist, you know, I, I had these sort of, I had these kind of things that were um, moderating. I did, I wasn't soaking in fundamentalist Christianity. I listened to regular punk bands. I was allowed to listen to grunge on the radio. You know, I, I had other inputs. And then even in my evangelical high school, which had some real problems, that's when I was first encouraged to read Catholic authors and like read mm. Silence by Shusaku Endo, which like really challenges the idea that like like maybe apostasy is okay in God's eyes. Like really mm. just kind of mind-blowing shit for an evangelical 17-year-old. And yeah. I think that like I think now as I see clients who have been in various levels of sort of how steeped they were and mm-hmm. how separated they were from the rest of culture. You know, it's not a one-to-one, but there's definitely a relationship there. And mm-hmm. I think that it le- it's led me to, to be a bit more vocal about what the benefits can be because those benefits in my own personal life have been absolutely necessary mm-hmm. and they weren't as poisoned by mm-hmm. this kind of all-in fortress-defending you know, culture war mentality that a lot of my friends have experienced. And I, I understand from their stories, plus uh, clients and, you know, guests of the show and all that kind of thing. Do you, do you think that that's at play here or, or what do you think? Yeah. You know, I always like to be very upfront in saying that I am not anti-religious. I'm, I am anti-harm, anti-power and control, yeah. anti racism, anti-oppression, you know, anti-abuse. And I don't even say this just as a therapist. I say this as a human, 
is that my job is never to convince you, whoever you is, that you have to believe the way that I do or that you have to adopt certain beliefs and values and things like that. I always say, like, if you can find a religion that doesn't have some of those harmful, abusive pieces to it, go for it. You know, one of the things I talk about in my book, in the chapter on grieving, is what I call grieving the good. And and it's this idea that like, it's not so cut and dry that, you know, we just, everything was bad and we just get rid of it. There is a lot of good that yeah. we have grieve when coming out of these religious, high control religious groups, fundamentalism, cults, things like that. You know, they they offer a sense of community and connection that is vital to human life and and survival and thriving, you know, c- community connection relationship. You know, you think about how many services many religions can provide. I'm singling out one group here, but I can think of many single mothers who were able to receive an immense amount of support, like very practical support, as yeah. well as relationship support, caregiving, things like that. I also think there's this like, intergenerational, you know, kind of peace that's available in churches that I don't know that there is any other group or system that has something comparable to that. I also think like for me personally, I'm, I sing, I always have, you know, I sing and I play the piano and I led worship for years and I deeply miss like communal singing and you know, that those were good parts of what I, or at least the good that I took from religion. And in some ways we can find that in other places, but I do think it's safe to say we will probably never have like the totality of what that was, which is that that's where the grief comes in then. And that's not a death sentence. Life goes on. I wonder what in my circles, I think I more often hear people sort of dismissing why anybody would be religious than I hear. I'm sure in other spaces, other people hear all the time on like mainstream evangelical media and stuff like that, like an overselling of the need to be, you know, in Mm -hmm. the body of Christ or whatever language Mm -hmm. they want to use. I like that you mentioned singing and single mothers. I toured in a rock band for eight years. That was not a Christian band. We, they actually tried to get our, second album in Christian bookstores and the Christian bookstore said no. So we, we mostly toured with just regular general market rock bands. And even in that world, the, the percentage of singers in those bands, guitarists and drummers in those bands who got their start in worship band or choir. I mean, it was like, it started to become a joke. I mean, it was (laughs) like, you know, of, of a group of people that was maybe 30% religious, like Mm -hmm. 70 or 80% of that group we stopped asking people because it was just like everybody had that experience. Sure. Um, and, and that is one of those kind of intangibles, or I guess it is, you know, you can, you can kind of quantify it in terms of creative expression in like a supportive environment kind of a thing. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the shows that I grew up going to, whether or not they had Christian bands playing were hosted in church basements. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you think about 12 step programs and all that stuff, like, yep. If you're going to go to a 12-step program, there's a 95% chance that it is held at a church mm-hmm. uh, for free or very cheap or however they work that yes. out. Yeah. And I like that you mentioned single mothers because, like, I think in my circles, there is a there is a sense of, like, well, I can get that stuff from church elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But I start going down, and then people will tell me the ways that they do it. And one of the things I've started to do is, like, keep a financial cost checklist of that. So, okay, therapy. So we're looking at, mm-hmm. depending on how often you go, that's five to $10,000 a year per person, maybe mm-hmm. less if you've got really good insurance, but then that means you have a really good job, which means you have other forms of financial privilege. Mm-hmm. Club soccer, I just looked up, one to $2,000 a year per kid, average cost. Yeah. Single moms are not going to have that floating around. You know, just like... The fact that you can get most of those things for free if you don't have the money in a religious Mm -hmm. setting is something that like 
you know, my friends can just go bouldering anytime they want to. Like, we'll just pop into REI. We'll throw a few hundred bucks down on having the right gear, join a climbing gym for $90 a month. I mean, these are just not available to everybody. <laughs> and especially like thinking of like the type of socioeconomic groups that progressives like myself are supposedly so interested, like thinking about immigrant communities, like mm-hmm. where, they're not going in bouldering, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. I think that's good. Now that doesn't negate that if these become high control environments or if yes. there are particularly nefarious leaders, mm-hmm. uh, man, mm-hmm. you know, ripe for abuse, ripe mm-hmm. for trauma. And of course, yeah. you know, of course we both know that we've both researched that you wrote a whole book about it. Maybe let's do just a little bit of terminology here because we've dropped a couple in. I want to make sure that people know where we're at. So the first big one in my mind is the difference between abuse and trauma. I know we have the same difference here, but let me, let's hear you say it. Yeah. So the kind of like quippy way that I'll say it is like abuse is the thing that happens to you. Trauma is the way your body and nervous system responds to the thing that happens to you. I do think that's like a foundational thing to understand because people oftentimes interchange those, you know, and not maliciously or anything or misleading, Mm -hmm. but just there's a huge difference. And people are shocked and usually enraged when I say, actually, abuse doesn't mean that you're traumatized. Right. Um, and, you know, and I think that that, and, and like I made a post on a couple posts on, um, social media, probably like a year or so ago where I said, hell is not traumatizing though. It could cause trauma. It can be, but not always. Yes. Yeah. You know, purity culture is not trauma though it can cause it, yeah. you know, and people were like, how could you say that? And I was trying to teach like the value of understanding that those are the things that happened to them, but their, how their body took it in, how it landed in, in their internal landscape may or may not have resulted in trauma. And the next person may or may not have a similar result. And that is so important to recognize, but no, I I agree. And (laughs) I always explain that with, you know, combat veterans, because most people do understand Mm -hmm. the idea that Two soldiers could witness the same event. One gets PTSD, the other doesn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's just the same thing with anything that is um, abusive. And that's that's actually, I try to nod to that by calling my scale the spiritual harm and abuse Mm -hmm. scale. Because it might just be harmful or it it might have actually been abuse, but like it rolled off your back. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's plenty of examples of that. And and I've, you know, thinking through clients, there's, there's a real range Uh, of things that we would probably not consider abusive that Mm -hmm. nonetheless, because of the person's story turned Mm -hmm. into a traumatic response in them. And Mm -hmm. that is totally valid. And that requires the same kind of trauma care that, uh, that someone coming back from war might require uh, with, Mm -hmm. with small differences to, to sort of tailor it to the experience. But it is in the same sense, the nervous system's, uh, response looks very similar across very different experiences and looks different across different people having the same experience. So maybe can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about the two parts of the nervous system and what we're talking about there? Cause I think that's also yeah. helpful to have a basic delineation. Yeah. So in a lot of interviews that I'm in, the first question is like, what is religious trauma? That's always the first thing. Yeah. And which is honestly a great place to start. Yeah. Especially if people have no familiarity. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I say back to them, well, religious trauma is trauma. So yeah. what that means is we have to look at it with all of the research that we have, and we can get a very good understanding of what it is and how, how it functions and lives in our body is going to be very similar to the person that has trauma from sexualized violence, trauma from war, things like that. Right. Um, and, and I, I like that because maybe I'm an outlier, but I don't think religious trauma needs a 
special diagnosis. I don't, you know, I don't think it should be in the DSM. Like I, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that I can say about that. And I know other voices would disagree with me, but that's okay. Okay. So when there's too much, too fast, too soon, that kind of overwhelms our ability to cope and come back to a place of safety. Um, when we are, are not able to discharge that trauma energy. So I'm not talking like woo woo energy. I'm talking adrenaline and cortisol. When that is not able to be resolved in our body, if we can't resolve it over time, it does become things like trauma or where we, it might lead to a diagnosis of PTSD or CPTSD. So what happens is, and this is very subjective from person to person, what is traumatic for you may or may not be for me, vice versa. When an overwhelming thing comes at us or, or a real perceived or remembered danger. I always like to say it that way. Our body mobilizes in the service of survival. So our nervous system is like fully taken over. We are not using much of our prefrontal cortex to calmly, you know, wrap, you know, sift through everything that's no, we're going running, on. We're ready to run from a bear basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. Find safety of some kind. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So the first thing that our body engages with is the sympathetic nervous system. And that's where we start to see what is commonly known as fight or flight responses. Our natural human inclination is to flight first. So like run away. And if we can't do that, we fight. Now, this is a very deeply subconscious process. This is not something that you are, you know, analyzing me like, should I run? Should I fight? Right? Like, no, your body is just like, this is what we have to do. And interestingly, your body or your nervous system makes that decision. That's why we run. That's why we fight. Okay. If that is not accessible to us, we then have another system that kicks in with a parasympathetic nervous system. And that's where we start to see things like fawning and freezing where like freezing might be like we become really numbed out or we might even move into like dissociation it you can see this on like national geographic channels you know with a gazelle being chased by a lion else and they fall over and they look like they're dead because their breathing is super shallow and they're super still And that is done in the service of their survival because a lion doesn't want already dead prey. And so they go into this freeze mode. And then when they know that the lion is gone, they spring up, do this vigorous shake to get all of that out of their body, and then scamper off as if nothing has happened. And we as humans are not dissimilar from that. The only difference is we do have a fully formed prefrontal cortex that when that kicks back online, which usually takes at least 20 minutes after the threat has gone away, then we're like, oh gosh, it wasn't that bad. Or no, that was just this thing over here. We do start to rationalize or try to make rational the things that have happened. And that actually is a bit of a detriment to humans. Exactly. uh, Because that's where we start to get that trauma energy stuck in our body, right? If I have this overwhelming experience and I have all these chemicals flooding through my body in the service of my survival, and then it it moves on and I'm kind of breathing through it and whatever. And I go, oh, it's not that big of a deal. We try to shut down all this stuff in our body and it gets stuck there. And so it would do us, you know, we would be doing ourselves a favor if we let our body actually move through that. One other thing I like to say is I really believe that religious trauma often most closely associates with complex trauma or complex PTSD. And the reason is because of the consistency, the persistency. Yeah. So the difference between complex and classic PTSD is classic PTSD involves a single event that's Mm -hmm. in the DSM diagnosis. There's interesting inside baseball conversations about whether that should shift and complex trauma is there isn't sort of like one at one instance mm-hmm. it's like the whole situation in which you spent a bunch of time was inherently traumatizing yeah. and so then you just sort of learn a way of being in the world that is regularly causing traumatic um, yeah. responses within your mind and body 
Yeah. And so that's why I do put, you know, cults, high control religion. Uh, these are often like kidnapping situations, domestic violence, you know, uh, war and terrorism, um, all situations. I would even potentially put racism in that under that umbrella, though it mm-hmm. is harder to, uh, there's, I do believe there's research coming out about that, but it's kind of a newer thing being explored. Like, oh, so does that mean that, you know, somebody is traumatized simply because of, you know, their race or their ethnicity, things like that? That's a different conversation. I guess it would probably depend on their experience, but you could certainly imagine. Yes. I, mean, I can imagine a case study where a person of color in a predominantly white situation yes. lives their entire childhood with regular, like being yeah. being the regular target of racism, uh, uh-huh. that would lead to something like a complex PTSD type of thing. You yeah. can you can certainly you can tell a story of how you would end up with that kind of a diagnosis yeah. for sure. Yeah, and so when we come back to religious trauma, we really are looking for for many people. It's that you've grown up in it. There is no way to escape, right? If you're a kid, you cannot yeah. run away. Where are you going to run to? You can't fight back because we know that that's, you know, like pretty much biblical, like obey your parents, honor your parents. Fighting with them would not be well accepted. And so you really have limited tools at your, um, you know, at your beck and call. And that's going to be mostly freezing and fawning. So appeasing, submitting to your authority, ingratiating yourself to them, trying to be perfect, following all the rules, things like that. And freezing could be like silencing yourself, no emotion, no reaction, just kind of letting things happen to you. And because that's just kind of the way that you have to learn to function for the majority of your time, and it's inescapable, that's where we do start to see some of more like the symptoms of CPTSD. Because for most people with complex trauma from religion, they don't have just one singular event that they're like there. It was it was this time. They might have some of those, but they also have this long lasting, you know, of impact from a, t- a system like this. So it's it's a, a necessary conversation to have, even though it can feel confusing at times. But I think it is important to note that if we see religious trauma as trauma, then all of the research and the books and the tools and the interventions that we use for any other type of trauma apply to religious trauma as well. And that is something that we need um, to have access to that. We don't need to recreate the wheel, which is important. Uh, We just need to understand some of the unique pieces of religious trauma in the recovery process. My wife and I are just days away from the birth of our second son. And so if you are hearing this now, it means that I am currently getting no sleep and I will not be conducting any you have permission interviews for the next few weeks. Don't worry. We've already we banked a bunch of them ahead of time. So there will not be any sort of significant break in the action from your perspective uh, unless something else happens. So no big deal there. Um, and I'm not I'm not here asking for, you know, a sympathy Patreon contribution or anything like that. I'm just letting you know that this ad is going to be running for a month or two because I'm not going to want to record another one and tell you about the ber- the perks of becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Those perks include, of course, two exclusive episodes per month not available on the main feed, at least not the whole thing on the main feed, access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only, and every episode of this podcast ad-free on the special patron feed, which comes into your email inbox once you sign up and you can add it to your regular podcast app and you can listen to all these episodes, the normal ones, not just the patron ones, without any ads. So that's why you might go to patreon.com slash Dan Coke and give seven bucks a month to be a part of the Patreon community. You might also do it mainly because of the Facebook group and the resources there and the community there. 
there's any number of reasons, really, why you might want to do this. You might think of it as like a, a, a shower present for a new baby. You might just feel bad for me. And maybe you've been here uh, before. Maybe you've been here more than two times. And you know just how exhausted I will be for the foreseeable future. Either way, thank you for being a regular listener of this show. Whether or not you join the Patreon community, I don't really care. I'm grateful for your involvement. Thanks for listening, thinking through this stuff with me. I appreciate all the emails I get from listeners. Feel free to send those. This is getting too long for a Patreon ad, so I will end it here. Patreon.com slash Dan Cope. Our family of now four. Thanks you. One of the distinctions I like to make too, and this is the name of my company, um, we're the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. And I do like to differentiate the difference between resolution and recovery Mm. because the resolution piece is resolving how that trauma lives in our bodies. And that, that fits that bill of religious trauma as trauma, where we can use a variety of modalities that have already been researched and shown to help with that process. The re- and, and that doesn't matter if it was trauma from religion, trauma from sexual assault, you know, whatever, we kind of can go with that. Now, I do think the recovery piece is where we start to see some of the differences. And that is in particular where it can be extremely helpful to have trained clinicians who do understand like dynamics of power and control and, you know, what happens in some of these high control religions. And that is, you know, like I I use an example where I'm like, okay, if you have a person coming back from war, part of the recovery process may be, you know, kind of entering into, say, crowded situations and not having panic attacks, whereas maybe somebody in a religious context would say, that doesn't bother me at all. Uh, Somebody in a religious context might say, I can't walk into Hobby Lobby because there's a lot of, you know, Christian music right. playing, whereas the veteran from war would say, I don't really care. So we we do look at that recovery piece. I think that's where there is some difference. Yeah. And again, I don't think we need to have a special diagnosis for it. I just think that clinicians need to be educated in what are some of these things. And let's believe our clients when they say this happened to me. Let's not bypass it by saying like, oh, you know, you just went to the wrong church. That's not who God really is. You know, these are just sinners. God is perfect. Like that can be deeply like, well, re-traumatizing in some ways. Yeah. But it really can erode any trust that's been created because now the client is put in the position of either having to silence themselves or convince you that what happened to me was that bad. And so, yeah, so I like to make a differentiation between those because sometimes that, you know, it's just, it's helpful to do that. And so what we look at in recovery are things like developmental skills, even (laughs) Um, for many people coming out of high control religions, there's some developmental stuntedness. I don't even know if that's a word. Right. But yeah, no, I love that though. I love that point. Yeah. Yeah. We work on things like boundaries and relationship. We look work on things like a sexual ethic. Um, we look at, you know, what would it be like sexual boundaries, but I, I change it around, you know, so like instead of no sex before marriage and how far away can you stay from that line, we go, let's involve our body to understand what would feel safe to us. Um, consent. (laughs) That's a big thing we work on. That was not taught, you know, basic, sometimes even like basic healthcare, basic hygiene, basic, you know, some things that we might be like, well, yeah, like that's just a thing. But if you're coming out of a context that is so controlling, you don't have to learn that because they have it all figured out for you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a continuum um, I like the term high control religion because it, it does kind of get to the main variable, you know, around a lot of this stuff, especially in that complex PTSD situation where, how, yeah, basically how much recovery do you need to do beyond just resolving the specific trauma 
of your mm-hmm. body? Like how poorly were you set up to mm-hmm. live outside of that system? Mm-hmm. How do you determine whether a client does have religious trauma or if they have something maybe less than that? Like, yeah, something yeah. to talk through. Yeah. So I do a lot of body-based work. Um, I am trained in EMDR. Um, I'm also a somatic experiencing practitioner, have a lot of experience with IFS, internal family systems, and uh, trauma-informed stabilization technique, which used to be called structural dissociation model uh, by Ono Vanderhart and Janina Fisher. And so what I'm looking for, you know, just kind of at the outset, I'm looking at how their body is moving and changing and shifting as they're talking. I'm looking at what they're talking about in terms of triggers. I'm looking at some basic things of like, how do you interact with other people? You know, is your life kind of what we might call impaired? Just again, some of those basic things. What is your history? What are kind of the, like the, what have you noticed that is happening in your own body or your own lived experience that has just giant question marks over it or nothing has seemed to work in the past? Those are some things that I look for. And I really kind of offer it as an option. Like, hey, you know, based on my research or experience, the symptoms, you know, everything that you're describing here is consistent with this diagnosis. And we don't have to have, we don't have to put a diagnosis on there, but I want you to know whoever the client is that this is kind of the lens through which I'm seeing things. And I'm going to offer some suggestions here on this is what we could do. Mm -hmm. Now I will say EMDR does this also. There's a lot of things that you set up before you can get into that trauma resolution process. And so like in somatic experiencing and TIST, which is trauma-informed stabilization techniques, there that component is there. And I would hang my hat on that as saying that is absolutely essential in trauma treatment. It yeah. just is. Because if we have a client who is not safe, uh, you know, can't find resources within themselves. It is going to be extremely difficult as well as maybe even harmful to have them try to go back and resolve that trauma. Yeah. And so that's usually the place that I start at with pretty much all of my clients, regardless of if they are exhibiting symptoms of trauma or not. Because what I do know is that in a lot of high control religions, cults, they are divorced from their body. Your body is evil. Everything that your body does and feels is sinful. And so I like to have kind of what I call like a return home, like getting them back into their bodies because an embodied person can then function differently in the world. Um, And that seems to be important across the board for all of my religious trauma clients. And so with some of them, then we use that as a foundation to go into trauma work. With others, we use that as a foundation to navigate some very specific areas of their life that they are seeing to be problematic for them. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about pop psychology and where it can kind of fail. So, you know, you talking about how if someone's going to do trauma work, it is absolutely imperative that they basically get a baseline of feeling safe in their own body and having bodily and mental tools to sort of cope with a difficult experience, right? So I will teach a couple, you know, visualization and relaxation Mm -hmm. techniques and kind of figure out from the client, which one of these is probably going to be the go-to, which one was more effective for you. And that, you know, and then being able to know, like just through, through reps and training, like when we might need to go back to that, (laughs) you know, like these are the kind of things that you just don't want to encourage anyone to work on without a licensed and trained clinician. Mm -hmm. Now that sucks because it's expensive. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of things in this world are expensive. The stuff that spreads from a pop psychological perspective is not the stuff that encourages careful work with licensed clinicians. Like if it's that, it's not pop psychology and, Mm -hmm. and it won't have the legs as that pop psychology has because pop psychology is developed by people with less understanding and less training 
who are maybe really pithy communicators Mm -hmm. are good at coming up with memorable words. Like maybe they would be good writers, but that doesn't make them good clinicians or Mm -hmm. experts or knowledgeable enough. That is like a never ending challenge, I think, for people doing this work while at the same time wanting there to be lower cost options for all kinds of problems Mm -hmm. people have. How do you engage with that stuff? Does it come up with clients? Do you do you counter it online? You know, specifically, Mm -hmm. I'm just I'm just kind of curious about that whole world. Yeah. So going back to the podcast that I co-host, one of the reasons we started it was because we wanted really clinically sound, accurate information. Uh, we did an episode and and now we kind of have a segment in some of our episodes and we call them vocabulary lessons. Oh, that's good. Where we talk about, okay, what what is actually a narcissist? What is narcissistic abuse? What is trauma bonding? What is, you know, like all these terms that have been co-opted in social media and online spaces, because we are really dedicated to giving people accurate information. And I've been accused of trying to control language not by many, just by a couple, because, (laughs) because I say like, you know, healing from religious trauma is different than faith deconstruction. Like it just is. And they're like, you can't say that. I'm like, yes, I can. I Mm -hmm. absolutely can. Faith deconstruction is a philosophical process. Trauma resolution is a physiological process. Like I can have tons of science to back that up. <laughs> so I I will sometimes push back a little bit on people. But what I really try to do is just make my work, my own personal work, very accurate yeah. as it comes to the research and science and what we know with clinical um, principles, things like that. I always say that my account is extremely unsexy. Because I don't hit on the latest church fads or leaders that are, you know, under fire and things like that. I'm the account that you go to when you go, hey, this anger is no longer sustainable. It's important for a while, but it's not necessarily sustainable. That's when people land at my account. Mm -hmm. Um, What's interesting about it is I have very, very little pushback or trolls on my account because they go, oh, this is different. Like this is actually validating my experiences and putting research and science behind it. This is somebody who has worked as a clinician with religious trauma and dynamics of power and control for nearly 15 years. Like there's a trust there. So I do appreciate that, but it does kind of grind my gears, especially when I see licensed professionals that are touting absolutely inaccurate information. And it does really bother me when I also see, you know, people that are quote unquote coaches that have zero training, zero certifications, zero knowledge. Like, you know, I'm I'm thinking of one person in particular who's like, everything is nervous system, nervous system, nervous system, which I don't necessarily disagree with. However, This person has had no training in the nervous system other than reading some books, has Mm -hmm. had no coaching training, has had no, you know, any sort of like formal trauma training. So I'm like, what do you do with your clients then when they become overwhelmed and they are completely dissociating? How do you even know how to identify dissociation? Yeah. 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 And so what's interesting with my company is that we all have mental health backgrounds. We all were trained in that field, whether it was LPC, LMFT, social work, but all of us have felt like the, that limits us in terms of like the clients we can see, which is why we've chosen a coaching uh, like modality to use in our work with clients. However, like we're extremely ethical. We do not, we recognize limits of, you know, scope of practice or scope of practice. And we realize like, Hey, this person needs a higher level of care than what we can give with this trauma modality that we are trained in. And I feel okay with that. What I don't feel okay with is the person who has never done any of this and saying, yes, I can work with you to resolve your trauma. No, you can't. If you have zero training, like you need to go get some. Otherwise, the potential for harm just 
exacerbates so much. And that's literally the thing that we're trying to help people heal from. Like, honestly, it is exactly the thing that's going on in a lot of these church spaces with pastors and, and other leaders who, you know, because of the sense of calling from God, as well as the way that the communities will reward Mm -hmm. and reinforce certain kinds of, of leadership. Mm -hmm. You've got a bunch of mostly dudes. Um, I'm sure there are some women, but of course most of these denominations don't allow women to be all that big in leadership. But you, I mean, certainly in the influencer world, you've got uh, maybe that's closer to an even split or something, but you know, all these people basically, I always think of the big Lebowski meme. That's just like your opinion, man. You know, like, and it is, and you read or saw something that seems very plausible to you. And then you repeat it with authority. And all we know from that is you find this convincing. That's the only piece of data I have because you don't, you don't have training. You're not subject to a licensure board where if you really up, you can lose your ability to, to be a pastor. Some denominations do have that, but of course you, the Mark Driscoll's of the world will just go start a non-denominational church. I mean, they don't need the Methodist licensing <laughs> yeah. board. They don't need that. Yeah. They don't need the presbytery. You know, he'll <laughs> just, he can always find people who want to buy what he's selling. So right. it, it's, it, you know, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a real problem yeah. there because you don't, yeah. not everybody can afford this. So they're mm-hmm. like, we need solutions that are not only yes. Pay, mm-hmm. pay someone who spent a hundred thousand dollars for their education and has mm-hmm. to pay that back and make a living. You know, we need other solutions, but, but what I know doesn't work is just skilled rhetoricians just kind of claiming. I mean, in fact, it's one of the items on my spiritual abuse scale is pastors or leaders explicitly claiming to speak on God's behalf. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. so widespread yeah. and it's like, <laughs> it, it's just a, it's a lie. Um, mm-hmm. Now, sometimes that's self-deception. Other times it's not. And that, you know, you could treat that slightly differently, but mm-hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a real quagmire, Laura. It's a real, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a tough situation. I'm glad that, you know, I'm glad that you guys are being above board with it. Yeah. I mean, literally like before we jumped on this call, I was like, putting together like a refining, uh, editing our code of ethics and, you know, creating additional policies for not having dual relationships and, you know, like all of these things. And because they all have clinical backgrounds, they're like, yeah, of course we wouldn't do this, but we're having it in writing. Yeah. But I don't know that other coaches do that. In fact, I've never seen anything like that before in everything that I've come across. And I will say the big risk of what we do is that there isn't a licensing body or accreditation. Yes. I was just going to say that. Yep. That's the risk that the client is taking that they can't just go to the board and get your yes and challenge your license. Yeah. Yeah. And we speak to that. It's in our uh, frequently asked questions and we do let them know up front. This is a risk because if there is harm done, we do have an in-house process for dealing that, Mm -hmm. but there isn't really anything that like nothing would necessarily be reportable because Mm -hmm. you have nobody to report that to. And so we're very careful about like, I'm very careful about who I hire and these sorts of things. But, but I also know that we are the exception, like by a long shot. Yeah. Mostly if you're going to get this work, it's going to be, it's going to be clinical therapy work Mm -hmm. with a licensed clinician and, and in that case, those people are responsible mm-hmm. to their licensure yes. boards. Yes. Um, so yeah, Which I, I see I would, as a pro. <laughs> yeah, a pro. I think that I think coaching, as you have found, like there are instances where that's better. Sometimes there are state line yes. things, and especially <laughs> when there aren't that many trained. You know, mm-hmm. we still don't have all that many clinicians who are trained in this work. No. Certainly, a bigger population. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I I will, and I think eventually I'll be doing. I've just slightly dipping my toes into coaching and consulting Um, the way that I've done it. I'm not working with trauma though, in that case. And so I'm doing it more like this is more goal accomplishing. We are not treating mental health issues. 
I'm more leaning on just my experience in spiritual yeah. and religious issues competency, yes. but you know, and, and can consult and give resources mm-hmm. for mental health things. But that's, mm-hmm. that's sort of solving a different problem than the problem that you guys are solving, right. which is just a lack of access yeah. to competent care. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's important to note too, is that, you know, I'll use EMDR as an example. I think almost every one of my practitioners is trained in EMDR. However, EMDR is only available to licensed individuals or those in the process of getting licensed. Therefore, we do not use EMDR in our practice because it's not available to coaches. However, we have five or six of us that have a somatic experiencing, went through the somatic experiencing three-year training, which is available to coaches. And so Mm. that then becomes the modality that they practice through because that's where they're trained. So we don't go into those areas, you know, and that, and and there are more and more, you know, internal family systems, um, brain spotting, somatic experiencing, TIST, like these are all, everybody's going to get the trainings so that they can work in their scope of practice, but it is, it is hard. <laughs> and, and I think you spoke to some of the issues that are so prevalent being the state line piece, as well as just a lot of limitations to access of care. And, and that you just named why we started <laughs> right there. Yeah. yeah, there it is. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, keep up the good work. Dr. Anderson, <laughs> Thank you. Um, we'll be, once I'm actually fully done and licensed and done with my internship and all that stuff in a couple years, I'm, I'm sure we'll be talking more just mm-hmm. on the, uh, networking and, and, you know, yes. supporting this whole, this whole, um, network of, of people doing this work, but enjoyed the conversation. The book is called Re- when religion hurts you. It's out on Brazos Press. Did you work with, mm-hmm. was Caitlin Beatty one of your, is she yeah. your rep or whatever? Yeah, she yeah. was my editor. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Caitlin's yeah. the best. Uh, I yeah. hope, I think that she and Roxy will be on this show pretty soon to talk about masculinity stuff. That's not confirmed yet, but we're, we're in the oh, works. Interesting. So, yeah. I love yeah. it. Yeah. That's I really, awesome. Really appreciate uh, the work that they're doing over at Saved yep. by the City. Okay. I think that's it. Uh, we're going to have a, there's a lot of links in the notes here for people yeah. who are wanting to, <laughs> to learn more and pursue more about this stuff. And uh, yeah, thanks everybody for listening. 